We are in Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8. If you remember last time, there was wonderful, wonderful resources from the king. He's approved them to go back, and so a, a second contingent is going back to the Holy Land. Uh, and you think, how could anything go wrong now? Well, I would say it is one thing to get approval and resources from the king, and it's something else entirely different to get volunteers to go back to the Holy Land. In the first return, it was 50,000. They seemed to go in several contingents of people, but by and large, they were led by Zerubbabel. That was our first return. Now we've got our second return under Ezra. We're going to read this list It's a list of 1,496 men, which coupled with their wives and children, what we're looking at is the second contingent is 5,000 people. You thought 50,000 was small, and it was compared to the millions that left for Babylon. But here we have just 5,000. And at this point, you may be wondering, well, weren't they commanded to return to to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem, to go back to Israel? Wasn't that a command? Yes. In several places, I'll give you just one of them. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 20, he says, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, and send it out to the end of the earth. Say that the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And we have 5,000 that return. I know, that's sad, I agree. (laughs) Thank you. So, why, why aren't they returning? Well, there's top five reasons. I gave you these, some of these when we studied Zerubbabel and early on in Ezra, but we're going to see really it's down to five reasons why they're not returning. Uh, the first one is this. They are still rebuilding. Jerusalem, remember, was basically burned to the ground. Um, it was so, and now it's so small and they're troubled with conflict And there's all sorts of anti-Semitism that is taking place all over throughout the empire. You're going to see this. If you've read the book of Esther, they were going to annihilate the Jews. Even though that was Haman's idea, the king was fine with it. And actually, there's a whole lot of people that were fine with it because anti-Semitism had grown in the empire. And you go, why? Because we'll see that in Nehemiah as well. Well, it's because the Jews now had been transported to different parts of the world, into Babylon, uh, what was known as Assyria beforehand. So now the other peoples of the world are looking at them going, they're so different. They dress differently. Some of them, they eat differently. And, and so anti-Semitism was, was a big deal, and it was getting worse. So they're still rebuilding. Number two, the journey to Jerusalem. It's dangerous, it's long, 900 miles took four months of travel, and I think it's important to note this, and we fail to see this because we are so 21st century. If you go to Jerusalem, in all likelihood, you ain't coming back again. We'll see Nehemiah was able to come back, but the average person could not return to Babylon, and that's all you've ever known. So... The journey was a mess. Number three, it was so long ago. Remember, by this time, Babylon conquered Jerusalem in 605 B.C. Now it's the year 458 B.C. 
it's been roughly 150 years. I mean, we have all different backgrounds in here, but we'll pick on Italy for a second. If some of you have a background in Italy and your, your forebears left there in the 1870s, okay? And now it's 2023 and you get a phone call from Italy or a telegram or something to this effect saying, hey, we need your help over in Italy, come back. You would say, that was the 1870s when we left. I, I don't have any connection with them anymore. Now, that's not exactly true with the Jews because the Jews had a holy book that told them to go back. But you can see why many of them didn't. It's just so long ago. What does God even care? Fourth reason, Israel is not independent. It's just part of the Persian Empire, a very small section of it. You know what's fascinating? In 1948, when Israel became a country for the first time in over 2,000 years, you still had Jews that were living in Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. They never went back. Uh, all throughout Russia, Europe. But it was interesting in 1948, especially in 1967, when Jerusalem was reconquered, that's when people started to come back. Uh, thousands of years they've stayed away, uh, but they, weren't, they became a nation. But here they're not a nation. They're not independent at all. But the fifth reason why is really key, and that's why I've bolded and underlined it, it's the comforts of Babylon. They're comfortable there. They've made money. They've received status. Things are going well. Why leave? And some of you are thinking right now, well, because God told them to leave. Oh, contraire. You see, God tells us to do what? Great commandment living, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Great commission living, going and making disciples of all nations. Going and making disciples. That could be just across the street. So are we being faithful? See, it's one thing to throw stones at the Jews, but those who live in glass houses, oh, you know the rest of that story. So point being, we're all sinners. Without God's grace, we wouldn't do anything right. Amen. Let's take a look at verse 1 through 14. These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Now, stop there. I want you to see this. this you may find this helpful. Some of you may not, but just stay, hang in there with me. Um, the Jews, uh, this is just part of the Hebrew language. They would name many of their kids after God. Uh, anytime you see the word L or E-L as part of a person's name, um, it's named for God, like Daniel, which is uh, God is my judge. Uh, L is the uh, name for God, one of the names for God, and it means might or power. And so anytime you see L as part of a person's name, that's God's name in there. Also, you would see the word Yah, in many of their names, which is not the full covenant name of God. You see in Exodus 2 when Moses is going to Egypt and he said, who shall I say sent me? And he asks and God gives him his covenant name, which is, we think it's said Yahweh, but we really don't know that exactly because ancient Hebrew didn't have vowels. And so we think that's probably right. And what they would do is they would shorten that name, Yahweh, and make it part of a person's name. Uh, for instance, Azariah. Did you catch it at the end? Yah? 
um, means Yahweh helps. So as we go through these, I'll try to kind of put emphasis, and I think it's interesting. Maybe I'll encourage you in your Hebrew studies. Verse 2 through all the way to verse 14. Of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom. Of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. There it is. Oh, of the sons of David, Hattush. Of the sons of Shechaniah. Who was of the sons of Parosh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men. Of the sons of Pahath, Moab, Elihoanai, the sons of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men. Of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the sons of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the sons of Adin, Ibed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the sons of Elam, uh, Jesheah, the sons of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. Of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the sons of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the sons of Jehael, and with him 218 men. Of the sons of Bani, Shalomith, the son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men. Of the sons of Babai, Zechariah, the sons of Babai, and with him 28 men. Of the sons of Osgod, Yohanan, the sons of Hakatam, and with him 110 men. Of the sons of Adonikim, stop, look up here. Adonikim, that's also a name of God. And you say, I don't see any El and I don't see any Yah in there. Yeah, but you do see what? Adon, meaning Adonai, which is the name for Lord. Continuing on. And those who came later, meaning those who came uh, after Zerubbabel, this second group of people, their names being Eliphalet, Jehul, uh, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men. Of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zakur, with them 70 men. Okay. Who are these folks? Well, it's interesting. There are the relatives. They are the relatives of those who left with Zerubbabel in 537 B.C. They stayed in touch. Strangely enough, you see all the names that I've listed, all of them save for Joab's name, is connected to the list of Zerubbabel that returned 80 years earlier. And what I think is interesting, there's no judgment for these folks. Uh, there's nothing in the text that, that looks at them and said, why didn't you leave 80 years ago? Why didn't you, your family go with them? And I think it shows God's amazing grace. You see, in Matthew 20, you have the laborers in the vineyard, and they go at different times based upon really when God gives them repentance in his own timing. So continuing on, let me point out just a few of the names. We won't go through all of them. Uh, you see the first couple of names there. You'll see Ithamar and Phineas. Ithamar was the fourth son of Aaron, which was the brother of Moses, Aaron being the first high priest. And then you have Phineas. Phineas is the thirdborn son. And you say, what about the first and second? Oh, you'll have to check out that story your own self when they offered strange fire to the Lord. Let's put it this way. Didn't end well for them, okay? Uh, Phineas, let me just mention Phineas because I think he's a fascinating story. In Numbers 25, him being the third son of Aaron, a situation broke out in Numbers 25 and it was very bad. The children of Israel began to have relations with the daughters of Moab, so that comprised immorality and idolatry. And the Bible says that Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel for all the grace he had given them, saving them out of Egypt, saving them throughout the wilderness, and look what they do. 
And so the Lord strikes judgment and kills 24,000 of them. Moses is well aware that this plague is beginning, and so he tells the judges, each of you basically strap on your sword and kill those men who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. He's saying, go after the men that are taking on these foreign women. They're committing idolatry and immorality and kill them. Well, it's interesting because the text says it's right there before Moses, and perhaps the idea is as Moses is giving the command, right in front of him there's a man who's bringing a Midianite woman into his tent. Whoa. What does Phineas do? Phineas grabs a spear and zings it through both man and woman. And you know what's interesting? We would look at that and we would go, it's time to arrest this man. And yet what, is, what happens? The plague stops. And it says this, Phineas, God says, Phineas has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. He has made atonement for Israel. What is God doing? He's saying that third born son of Aaron is the guy who has my heart. He's jealous for what things I'm jealous for. And that is the glory of God and not all these horrible things. So interesting, check it out on your own. That's, that's free, that has nothing to do with the text. I just thought it was interesting. And then Hattush, I'll draw your attention to him and his is vitally important. Hattush is the great, great grandson of Zerubbabel. You know, in our studies of Zerubbabel, he's of the kingly line of the king of, of David, that kingly line. And yet note this in verse two, he's not king. He's just head of his family. And you say, well, why has any king? Well, it's because they're not an independent country. And yet, if you're an ancient Jew and you meet Hattush and you shake his hand and you go, you should be king. You're of the line of David. We see in 2 Samuel 7, 13, God says to David, I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever, forever. They all knew that. All the ancient Jews knew that. But it's been over 150 years since the son of David has ruled in Jerusalem. So why is the name Hattush here? Remember who wrote the book of Ezra? The Holy Spirit? Okay, who wrote the whole Bible. So it's important for him, for us to know when we see Hattush, oh, the son of David. The Holy Spirit wants us to know, I believe, he has not forgotten God's promise. The line of David is still intact. It's not snuffed out. Hattush is not going to reign, but about, oh, 400 years from now, we have the one, the one who is the true king of, of Israel, of the line of David, and that's Jesus Christ. So it's showing us that in advance. But I will tell you this, there's a shift in the power structure, and I think you'll see it. It used to be the line of David was kind of the people of power, right? The kings. But by this time, it shifts, and it stays shifted even until the time of Christ, where you see the priesthood is most important. The kingly tribe Judah is kind of set aside to the priestly tribe Levi. And once again, the reason why is because the Jews don't have their own country. They can't make somebody king. They already have another king in Persia. So they, the high priest kind of became very, very important. One other thing I'll draw your attention to in all this in verse, verses 1 through 14 is, did you catch the importance of the head of each family? I mean, that's like nailing it. And some people go, well, it's because that's the way it was back then. Well, 
Perhaps that has something to do it, and yet at the same time, I like what one of the commentators, Derek Kidner, noted. He said, it's countercultural to society and today's church. Church strategy often appears to reverse this order, concentrating only on the children to the tail end of the family, to the neglect of the head of the house. I think that's interesting. I think the church is kind of following society there. I love, by the way, I love our children's ministry, and the folks uh, do a great job of doing it. Um, so not to discount children's ministry at all. But it's interesting because um, in society, that's what we do. Now, we just focus on the kids. And I think, that's, I think that we're missing it, something. So verse 15, uh, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priest, I found there none of the sons of Levi. None of the sons. Okay, what you'll see here from here on out, from the end of chapter 7 to the end of chapter 9, it looks like Ezra's diary. He's writing in first person. He says, I assembled them at the river that runs to Ahava. It's a, it seems to be a channel that goes from the Euphrates River down to the Tigris River. And there they're going to camp, and they're going to wait for everybody to get there before they head out to Jerusalem. But there's one big problem. You saw it, right? There's no Levites. There's none, not one. And remember, Ezra is not rebuilding the temple. He's rebuilding what? The people. The Levites, they would be in charge of the maintenance of the temple. They would sing psalms in the, in the services. They would serve as guards, definitely help with sacrifices. And they would also do what? Teach the law. And Ezra's going back to the teach the law, and we've got no Levites. This is a problem. What's happened? Where are they? Well, I think they're the same place where everybody else is. They've fallen in love with the comforts of Babylon. They could own their land in other parts of the world, whereas in Israel they had to live in cities, and the Lord was their inheritance. And so they're not coming. They ain't coming. Well, what's Ezra going to do? Let's take a look. Verse 16 and 17. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Yahrib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, Meshulam, leading men, and for Jorib and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at that place, Kasaphia. Kasaphia was probably a Babylonian province, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Kasaphia. Namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. Now, you may have noticed the name Elnathan is used three times. And some people will say, well, there's mistakes all over the Bible. Uh, no. In a congregation this size, we might have, a, a, I know for a fact, we've got a couple of Phillips or perhaps two or three. We may have a few Johns as well. Um, so no, I, I think there's probably, it's a common name in Hebrew. What is going on here? Is it Ezra sending for big Louis and his eight Sicilian brothers? Like, you know what to do. Get me some Levites. Well, not exactly. Uh, what he does is he does call nine men who carried a lot of weight. They were heads of their families, along with a couple of other teachers that were called men of insight. That means they knew the word. And they appealed to these Levites and said, you know what the Bible says. What are you doing here? 
you should come back with us and really encourage them to serve the Lord. I know you will find this fascinating, I think, but sometimes they had a hard time in ancient Israel and ancient Jews to find people that could serve. I mean, that's never the case, right? In the modern day church, well, it's not that often here. Actually, y'all are, there's a whole lot of servants here, but they really struggled with this. And so they, they had to, to move on this. They had to really encourage some people to serve. And it's interesting. I think you know this as well. Some of you more so in particular, but when you serve, what comes along with that oftentimes? Suffering. Suffering. It's not easy. You look around, you go, I'm dealing with sinners. And then you look in the mirror and you're like, I'm dealing with a sinner here. I'm dealing with difficulties. It's interesting because Paul, when he's writing Timothy, he says, the things which you have heard me say, entrust a faithful man who will also be qualified to teach others. He says that in 2 Timothy 2.2. And you know what he says in the very next verse? Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul has just told them, hand these things off to men that can also teach. And then he also says, prepare for suffering. That's the way it works, folks. Uh, John Bunyan, six years after his second period of imprisonment for preaching the gospel, he knew that more persecution was coming with the arrival of Charles II onto the royal British throne. So he wrote a book called Advice to Sufferers. It's a good one. He exhorts those suffering for Christ not to run away from suffering. You can see it up there what he wrote. A man, when he suffereth for Christ, is set upon a hill, upon a state, as in a theater, to play a part for God in the world. Some of you have done acting before, maybe even small productions, maybe as the school play. Some of you have done musicals, but you know what you're called to. You have a part. You can't just go, you know, I think I'm just going to sit this one out. No, you, you have a part to play. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's workmanship creating Christ Jesus for, for good works, which what? God prepared in advance that so we should walk in them. So God is doing this. He's preparing the way. He's moving you forward into it. And um, I love what Bunyan says. We've got a part to play. What's your part to play? Too many of us perhaps try to figure it out, and my encouragement is just get involved. Just serve wherever there's a need. So note what he tells them. He goes, I told them what to say. But in the Hebrew, it says like this, I put words in their mouth. I put words in their mouth. And what's fascinating is the words that he puts in their mouth, it wins them. It wins, we'll see in just a second, 38 Levites are gonna come where there was zero beforehand. You know what that shows me? It doesn't show me that somehow that Ezra could somehow manipulate the situation and get it just right and they would come. No, it reminds me of what Christ does when he sends the Holy Spirit with us. At justification, when you first became a believer, Jesus says in John 16, 7 and 8, I will send him, meaning the Holy Spirit, to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It happened to everybody in here who is in Christ. There was a certain point where you got up in the morning or you were in the evening or you heard a sermon and you were like, yes, that makes sense. Now, some of us may not remember that, but those same people were like, 
I feel guilty about what I've done in the past. What? I've never felt guilty about anything. And this is what happens for a believer is the Lord does divine heart surgery on us. He takes out the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh. He grants us faith and repentance, and we believe. As I've said before, your role in salvation, your role in justification was being lost. Way to go. (laughs) You're the dead one that the Lord saved. But he doesn't only do that with our justification, the words that he gives us through the word of God and, and saves us through the spirit. He also does it through our sanctification. I love this. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Aren't you so glad it doesn't stop there? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Some of you, I've talked with you, you had no desire to do the present things that you do regarding service to the Lord, regarding righteousness. But with time, the Lord, he changes your will. So when we say you have become a new creation, you have become a new creation. But there's another semblance of that is that once the Lord is sanctifying us, we are becoming different every day. None of us ever get it together so that we become perfect. That's the next life. But for this life, the Lord is basically putting words in the mouth of the Spirit. He brings them to us through his word, and we change. And all glory to God. Verse 18 through 20, and by the good hand of our God on us, you see it here, all glory to God, Ezra is giving. They brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah with him, Jeshiah of the sons of Merari with his kinsmen and their sons, 20. Besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, these were all mentioned by name. So when it says they brought up the man of discretion, his name is Sherebiah. He's a, uh, the, the discretion, the term in Hebrew is shakel. That means he's a man of understanding. He had prudence. He was wise. And then we have 20 sons of Merari. Merari, these were the folks that would carry the tabernacle or or the uh, Ark of the Covenant in the wilderness. They took care of the tabernacle. And overall, we've got 38 Levites and 220 temple servants where they had none earlier. I think we can see clearly in the text, the Lord's work requires not just teachers and leaders, but also workers as well. The workers are vital, vital part of ministry. And too many times they're overlooked. I'm so glad we've got so many here. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul can write about the different gifts of the Spirit. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem, not that are, but that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Indispensable. (coughs) a Christian school I was a part of a time, and they would say, we are here to make Christian leaders. And the English teacher came to me and he said, if we all lead, where are the workers? That's a good, that's a good word. I'm going to get a drink. <laughs> it's very important. So don't feel like that. Some people go, I'm just, I'm nothing here. No, you are something. God has crafted you for his work. 
Praise the Lord for that. Verse 21 through 23, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey and for ourselves, our children and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask for the king, for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy, against the enemy. On the way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Now, for those folks that love American history, verse 21 means something to you, does it not? I look, now you're looking down going, you don't want to be called by the teacher. Well, it's the text of John Robinson. That was his last sermon at Leyden in the Netherlands before the pilgrims set sail for the new world in 1620. He had a sermon over verse 21. They are going into this new world and it just fit the text and it also fit their time frame. But I want you to note this. Uh, They are proclaiming, he said, I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava. Fasting, uh, we'll see, is a whole lot more pronounced in the later parts of the Old Testament, in the time of Nehemiah and Esther. Um, And we also see it in the New Testament as well. Jesus says in chapter uh, 6, 16 of of Matthew, he says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Did you catch that Jesus said, if you fast? Oh, no, he didn't. He said, when you fast. Fasting is not probably the most popular Christian exercise, spiritual discipline, but it's something we're called to do, actually. And so just a quick excursus in that. Um, I like what one of the seminary professors, Constable, said at Dallas Seminary. He said, fasting facilitates prayer. It does not manipulate God. And many of us perhaps do not fast because, well, number one, we don't like it. <laughs> and number two, we feel like this is, this is manipulative, and I don't want to manipulate God. And I would tell you this, if you're doing fasting correctly, it's, you're not manipulating anybody, as if you could manipulate God. There's four reasons why people would fast in the Old Testament. It's an acrostic, C-R-E-W. I don't know what the acrostic really means. It's just the best one I could do. Uh, one C is commemorative, or it was a commemoration. They would fast after the temple was destroyed or after they, they remember the siege of Jerusalem every year as kind of reminders, uh, as commemorating what God has done. Uh, secondly, it would be done for repentance. We have Ahab's feigned, if you will, repentance, perhaps, And we have Nineveh, they are tearing their clothes and they are repenting and fasting because it was a sign of repentance towards the Lord. The third one, we have E, extraordinary intercession. (laughs) Kind of fit the acrostic, if you will. But anytime you were, or someone you knew fall into sickness or dying, war, annihilation, danger, help, you just fast. We see this in Ezra chapter 4, verse 16, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. So when you are begging the Lord for something, and, and certainly we don't have to fast, but that's what we did many times in the Old Testament. They would fast as they prayed. And fourthly, wisdom, wisdom for direction. 
In Acts 13, um, God said, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas. And what did the church of Antioch do? Fasted. Calvin writes in, John, in his Institutes, whenever men are to pray to God concerning any great matter, it would be expedient to appoint fasting along with prayer. In the early church, before you were baptized, the, they would say, take some time to fast. Uh, Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, there's something about fasting that sharpens the edge of our intercessions and deepens the passion of our supplications. So we won't do this here today because then you would lose any sort of eternal reward. If I were to say, who in here fasts? Don't raise your hand. Um, it, but I will tell you this, fasting is, even they're finding out it's actually very good for your physical system as well. And God forbid that we should say, oh, okay, now I'm going to fast uh, because it's good for my body. No, ultimately it's good for the body of Christ. And if some of you say, well, Jeff, I just, I just don't fast. My encouragement is to fast with, with maybe a friend or maybe a few others. It makes it a little bit easier. Uh, but even at this point, some of you say, listen, I'd fast. I just don't like to do it. it. Hurts my stomach. I feel so tired. I get a bad headache. And what I would say to you is, do you think you're the only one that feels that way? <laughs> we all feel that way. When we go through fasting, oh my goodness. So, um, and yet it's important. And the Lord expects it not as a way for somehow for us to gain righteousness in his sight. No, God forbid. Our righteousness is in Christ. But it's important. And so be challenged today to, uh, to engage that. I, I won't tell you when I do it, but I was about to. So um, he says this, and the reason why they're fasting is so that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him for a safe journey. There we go. That's your extraordinary intercession. Remember, they're going to be traveling with all their stuff overseas, and what, not overseas, or across a desert, and it's millions of dollars by today's standard. So he says this, for I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him. So he's saying to the king, we don't need mounted troops. We're okay. But what's kind of interesting is that Nehemiah accepted the help of the king and said, yeah, send us your troops. Let's do this thing. So which one is right? Ezra or Nehemiah? Well, we'll put it this way. We'll get there. But first off, why not, Ezra? I mean, you're taking millions of dollars over. Why would you not want unarmed guards with you? If perhaps there's a previous conversation that we don't have in the text. My guess is Ezra witnessed to the king. He told the king, the Lord is superior above all your gods, king. He's superior. And perhaps the king at a certain point said, well, would you like, though, guards? After Ezra had said how superior God is, and now he's like, okay, now this is awkward. Uh, God will provide for us. Yes, we'll take your, your guards. No, he said God will provide, and no, we're okay. Uh, we don't know exactly, but I would say this. Is it right or wrong to ask for human help as well as the Lord's help in trusting him? Well, it kind of depends on the motivation um, let me pull up two Georges from church history, and this will be helpful. George Mueller was a guy who lived in 19th century England, and he, he uh, built five different orphanages and uh, 
oh my goodness, all these different things. And he supported them the entire time and he never asked for money ever, ever. And you say, how is that even possible? George Mueller was under the conviction that he's going to prove to the world that man can be moved by God alone. And God will just grant that people, they would hear about the situation and they would come up. You need to read George Mueller's autobiography. It's fascinating how he would pray for things and then the Lord would just bring it, just deliver. Some people would drop off money to him. Uh, There's many great stories and I won't belabor that. Did he do right? Yeah, I think he did. And then you've got George Whitfield who lived roughly, oh, 50 years before him and he would ask for help as he was building an orphanage. Why would he do that? Well, because he just thought it was the right thing to do. So as a matter of fact, I've quoted him before, but Benjamin Franklin writes about it. He said, the sight of their miserable situation, meaning the miserable situation of the orphans, inspired the benevolent heart of Mr. Whitfield with the idea of building an orphan house there in Georgia in which they might be supported and educated. He preached up this charity and made large collections for his eloquence had a wonderful power over the hearts and purses of his hearers, of which I myself was one. So I think what it comes down to is you probably want to get to the heart of the matter. What's your motivation? Are you trusting the Lord even as you're asking people? Are you trying to manipulate folks to get what you think is the Lord's will? It's really, I would take some time, even fasting and yea, even prayer, or maybe flip those around, fasting and prayer about that. So Ezra says, no, we don't need it. We're fine. But note what he takes here. Let's take a look. Verse 24 through 30. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into the hand 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks, and two vessels of fine, bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, you, the people carrying this stuff, you are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priest and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. All right. They are carrying so much money in these vessels, over 900 miles um, one of the commentators is noting it was roughly 28 tons of fine, uh, precious um, vessels made of gold, silver, bronze. They should have been attacked <laughs> on the way. And he tells Ezra, he looks at the people holding the vessels and he, and he looks at them and goes, you are holy to the Lord. It was vitally important that he said, even as you're carrying these things, don't try to steal them. You are set apart for the Lord's work, so take care what you're doing. Fast forward, verse 31 and 32. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us. That means he was watching over them, taking care of them. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. 
We came to Jerusalem there and we remained three days. What's interesting in the English, it uses the word hand. In the Hebrew, it's slightly different, but with the same meaning. We see it's almost like an epic battle. The hand of God, verse 31, and then at the end of verse 31, he delivered us from the hand of the enemy. Who's going to win? The hand of God, the hand of the enemy. Well, Isaiah reveals it to us. Isaiah 49, 16, where God says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. We are the Lord's people. Anything that happens to us, anything is by the Lord's decree and we can trust him for it. So they're in Jerusalem. Look, look how fast that trip went. <laughs> they're back in Jerusalem. But notice what happens here now. Verse 33 and 34. On the fourth day within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth, the priest, son of Uriah. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Jozebad, the son of Jeshua, and Nodiah, the son of Benui. The whole was counted, it says, and weighed. So what they did here is they took it all to Jerusalem and now they're weighing it. They didn't just go, oh, just turn in your vessels here. <laughs> no, 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 let's weigh, let's weigh it. Um, it reminds me of an old Russian proverb. Actually, some of you that are from the 80s will know it. Uh, the Russian proverb is this, do veryai, no pro veryai. You don't know Russian, neither do I. But it rhymes. And in the 1980s, uh, there's an American scholar named Suzanne Massey that started meeting with Ronald Reagan, and she helped him as he dealt with the Russians uh, with armed treaties and things of this nature. And uh, he learned this phrase, and he goes, I like this, and I'm going to keep saying it over and over again because the Russians respected it, the Soviets, and, uh, and that term is, you might already know it by now, is trust but verify. That's a Russian, that's not a Reagan thing, that's a Russian proverb, but Reagan used it over and over again, and finally Gorbachev looked at him after he'd said it several times, he goes, you really like that phrase, don't you? And Reagan looked at him, he goes, yes, I like it. So it helped him. We see this happening here, is they're trusting, but they're verifying. 2 Corinthians 8.21, he says, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Now catch this. I'm not encouraging y'all to be people pleasers because ultimately you're pleasing yourself because you're wanting to make yourself look good. No, I'm encouraging us to be people of integrity. And he's saying, if they carry this stuff 900 miles, it's gonna weigh the same thing as when I got it in Babylon. And it was, it was all there. Verse 35 and 36. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel 12 bulls for all Israel, there it is again, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps, which were the leaders of governors, and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. So I hope you're catching this over and over again. We are the people of God. We're gonna do 12 bulls. Why 96 rams? Well, 12 times 8 is 96. Well, why 77 lambs? Well, it may have originally been written as 72, 
but Hebrew lettering is kind of difficult. So maybe 77 is not the right amount. But anyway, if it is 72, it's 12 times six for you math nerds. Um, Finally, he says they're going to do a burnt offering. If you do burnt offerings, if you catch, if you don't, please don't miss this. Burnt offerings is the idea I am set apart for the Lord. Burn the whole thing. I'm holding nothing back from God. And that's the way they would do this. Last point I'll say, and then I'd like to go into a story. They supported the people in the house of God. They supported them. The point is, is that don't forget that last line because in, in the next two chapters, we're going to see some really tough discipline that Ezra is going to put up on the people. And yet Ezra, as we see, came primarily as a person that wanted to support the people. He loves the people and he's going to support them. That's exactly what Christ does with us as well. And he is, if I can say it, he is merciless in dealing with your sin and mine. So the hand of our God, he's on us, is he not? We see this constant interweaving between the sovereignty of God and the humanity or the human responsibility. Ezra is going to go because he loves the Lord. But why does he love the Lord? Because God has put that in his heart. Ezra is going to serve the people because it's the right thing to do. But why is it the right thing to do? Because the hand of the Lord is upon him the whole time. He's directing his steps. He's guarding his ways. One of my favorite all-time missionaries is a lady by the name of Anne Hasseltine Judson. Her husband and her, they were really the first great American missionary couple. They left Massachusetts in the early 1800s and went to Burma, modern-day Myanmar. They had to do 12 hours of uh, language classes every day. For six years, he preached the gospel. She would talk to the wives about Christ, and they had zero converts. If you go to Myanmar today, you will see thousands of believers in Jesus Christ. But my point of it is, is that um, Adoniram wanted to ask his uh, girlfriend to marry him. And the letter that he wrote to her dad was shocking. I'm reading it to you because it, it shows the reveals, I think, to us this life, God's sovereignty, I'm responsible to go make disciples. Notice when he writes to his, his future father-in-law in hopes that he will allow him to marry his wife, Anne, uh, his girlfriend, Anne. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, and to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this? For the sake, for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and for the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to your Savior and hers from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Hey, Dad, how are you going to answer that request? Well, what he does, the father does, I think is smart. 
He, at the end of the day, he says, I can't determine this. You have to decide, Anne. And Anne marries him. And at age 22, she goes overseas. Her first two children die. She eventually dies. And then her third child that she had just given birth to dies. She dies at age 37 of smallpox. But what she does in that short period of time Y'all, she knew Burmese better than her husband, and he was brilliant. He knew Latin, Greek, Hebrew, but she caught on so fast. And she would re- reach um, these ladies for Christ, give them Bible studies, and uh, had a tremendous impact. There's no way Adoniram would have survived without his bride over there. Point being is that, what's your part? Maybe your part is not to go over to Myanmar, but what is your part? loving the Lord, loving your uh, neighbors, yourself, especially the brethren, making disciples, that should last you for, oh, a good 70, 80 years, I think, or however much time he gives us. Father, we thank you for the time. Thank you for your grace. We pray that you would help us, that we would uh, not in any way seek to perform for you. As, as Anne, one thing I failed to mention at the end of her her life, that she says, we have much to do for Christ. In essence, let's go make disciples. So we pray that you would help us to be about the same work. Father, she said, in a little while, we will be in eternity. Before we find ourselves there, let us do much for Christ. Not as a way to earn anything. We are on the team. We have the jersey. We are taken care of perfectly for eternity. But Lord, we want to do it as a way of saying, thank you for what you've done for us. We're excited about what you have in this church, and we're excited about what you're going to do. So we thank you in advance for it. In your son's name we pray it. Amen.